vote um, in this local election, it's extremely important. You know, you get to decide now who's going to be running your local council um, for the next few years. And we've got important decisions to make. So hopefully people will get out and vote because at the end of the day, we fought for those rights and it's important that people don't waste it. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name's Doina Cornell and I'm currently district councillor for the town of Dursley, standing again in the election. And since 2018, I've been leader of the Stroud District Labour Group and also leader of the council. So what are the key issues Labour is campaigning on in Stroud this year? So in partnership with the Lib Dems and the Green Party, we've been running the council since 2012. So our campaign is very much focused on our track record, what we've achieved over the last eight years of running the council across a whole range of issues, the economy, the environment, housing and health and wellbeing particularly we're focusing on. And then obviously we've been, over the last year, we've had the pandemic, a major change for all of us. And so the other thing is looking forward with hope to the future. What are the principal challenges that we face collectively as, as a community? And our plan for helping to work in partnership with our community to um, come back from that and recover and bounce back. It's not only our track record, it's also our team of candidates. We've got a fantastic team of very diverse, from all walks of life, all backgrounds, all ages, and um, all community leaders in their own right. So those are the people we want to get elected to represent their communities. So on the topic of a post-COVID recovery, there was a lot of optimistic talk last year around this kind of time about how coronavirus could be a great leveller. However, it's clear that the pandemic has in reality just deepened existing fault lines of inequality. The last time our country faced recovering from an economic crisis comparable to that of the COVID-19 pandemic was the 2008 banking crash, following which we had to endure a decade of austerity and privatisation. Local government budgets were slashed, community services were outsourced, and whilst this of course had a severe social impact, it also resulted in quite a lot of the public feeling justifiably alienated and disenfranchised with local government. So do you believe that we are facing a democratic crisis in relation to local government? And if so, what is Stroud Labour doing to rebuild trust in local politics? Well, there's a lot in there, isn't there? I mean, I would say a couple of things. One is um, when it comes to local elections, local government, you don't get obviously the same amount of interest you would have the general election. Turnout tends to be lower. And of course, people tend to be looking at the national news. So that's a general thing which hasn't really changed Um over many, many years. Um, and people always, you know, we live in an area where we've got a county council, a district, town and parish. We're always having to explain to people we have different responsibilities. So I do understand that. I think it's difficult when you make a sort of generic survey like that to know, you know, I'd be interested if you broke it down by individual councillors or by, by parties because councillors are all very different. They're individuals and some are extremely well known in their wards because they've been community leaders for a long time. They've been actively, they'll be involved in other activities. Um, and so people would know who they are. In other areas, you, you may have a councillor, for example, who just doesn't really engage. So it's quite hard to know. I mean, I guess your survey gives us an overall picture. But I think if you drill down a little bit into individual places, you'd find that that varied. I think it's an interesting one on the effect of the pandemic, because from a local government point of view, what you have seen, and I would say when I say local government, I would also say in partnership with local communities, you have actually seen a renewal of the, necess the necessity of um, why we have local government. And just to give you one practical example, central government wanted to provide these grants for businesses. And so district councils were, had the job of having to pay them out. So that was a huge amount of work to go to many businesses who many of them would never have much contact with the council, for example, because they're too small to pay business rates. So we suddenly discovered we have thousands of businesses in the district and they all need to receive a payment. So actually our contact with businesses, and I've heard lots of businesses say they've been very happy that they got such a prompt service and they got the money as quickly as they could from the council. So I think in some ways, because the pandemic's touched everyone, you've seen more of a contact with local councils and also the community organisations and mutual aid groups. Um, many people have been touched by those and, and the council has been working in partnership with them to get support to people. And in many cases, people who haven't needed help before. The pandemic meant people found themselves having to come for help, for example, to pay their council tax. We have a local support scheme. We're one of the last councils in the country to provide if people need it and they're eligible 100% payment for their council tax. Now we, we see obviously a rise in that over the last year so hopefully that has sort of raised awareness of why councils exist and their importance. 
interestingly enough, just before I came on this interview, I was reflecting what you might ask me and thinking, what am I going to say? And lots of things were whirling around in my head. And I was thinking, I've been a counsellor for eight years. And I thought, what, what am I thinking about over the last eight years? What changes have I seen? And one thing I've definitely seen is we talk a lot about funding and how there have been funding cuts. And you mentioned austerity. And that's an absolute background to what we've seen going on over the last decade. Basically, unfortunately, we had a financial crash caused by banks and and sort of, you know, craziness around over debt and all the rest of it. Um, But public services in this country, and that means people, local people, paid the price because we saw a gradual hollowing out of public services and cuts um, in every single aspect of our lives. And so the pandemic came on the back of that real fragility of of cuts and austerity. But it's not just about funding. What I've really noticed is how there's been an increasing centralisation of power and councils are losing more and more autonomy. In fact, there's a a report that's just come out in the last few days looking into more of that detail. And less and less stuff is run by councils and there's less and less council housing. If you take something like social care, for instance, a tiny percentage is now run by public sector. Most of it's private. We've seen a decline. I think there's about a third less council homes than there were. So there's this background to an increasing centralisation. But what was interesting about the pandemic is you saw this renewal of community, people being in their lockdown areas, they couldn't get out. And then, I mean, where I live, I've mentioned this before, is a fantastic example through the GL11 Community Hub, which really set out to make sure every single household in the Cam and Dursley area was supported. And we work very closely on them with that. So I think um, in some ways, whether it's actually the local council, or maybe it's more just their local community, people, it seems to me people have got more in touch with their local area and it's become more significant for them. But I do think there's a worry about that people's lack of knowledge about who their councillors are the disengagement with local politics, which I think is always the case. I'm passionate about local government and I think it's great, but then I'm in that little bubble, aren't I? And I see what an impact, it, what positive impact it can have. But I'm conscious that for many people out there, their lives are dominated by other concerns. They're not really very interested in what the council's doing other than to make sure their bins are collected. If they're a family or a household which doesn't need help, there are some people who need a lot of help, other people who go about their lives. I think the point is we should be there to do the stuff that they don't really need to notice that things are going okay. The streets are clean, the rubbish is collected and communities are safe and clean and ideally I suppose maybe council shouldn't be noticed that might be the ideal possibly that means everything would be going right I suppose you could argue that as well couldn't you on a similar thread regarding a post-covid recovery well there seems to be a consensus now across the political spectrum in the UK that any kind of recovery is going to involve a green transition but there's also people pointing to the success of equitable regeneration from councils like Preston or Salford but uh what practical steps has Labour taken to rebuild wealth within communities with democratic oversight in a way which doesn't result in wealth extraction and has actual clear social benefits? So Preston Council um, is, is an example that you give, and um, they were very much influenced by the work of the Democracy Collaborative um, and the thinking in the States. That's really where that pioneered. And if you look at our manifesto and you look at the section on the economy, that is very much influenced by that thinking and exactly what you're saying. It's about, if you just take the environment from its economic point of view just for a moment, it's about moving away from an extractive economy to a democratic economy. And there's several principles. And just to give you one example, it's around ownership of business. Now, I'm not only a member of the Labour Party, I'm also a member of the Cooperative Party. And one of the things we've wanted to encourage and is also something we'd like to see greater is a, a greater building um, or expansion of the cooperative sector in our district and, and also all different ranges of ownership. That's just one practical example. And that is around building in that local resilience and bringing the power back to communities. And that's very much what fuels that that whole idea of, of this making the economy more democratic. So what's something we have done as a council and we will continue to do is we um, examine our local spend. And that's another key element is when you're a, an institution, what they call an anchor institution, like a local council, anchor it in your community. And you inevitably, even if your funding's been cut, you're still going to be spending quite a significant amount of money, even on you know printing or other sort of contracts that you need to do. And so what you should be looking at, what percentage of that do you actually spend locally? and always be aiming to increase that. So that's something you can do that's significant. Another important thing you can do is how do you engage with local businesses? Again, when you're talking about contracting and procurement, as a council, you have quite a lot of power 
to set a really good example, something that we've started to do and we'd also like to develop further. So encouraging businesses that have good practice, so for example, do they pay the living wage to their workforce? Do they recognise trade unions? Do they have good environmental practice? If you look at the strategy, which as a council we adopted recently to hit our, our you know, our ambition to hit uh, become a carbon neutral district by 2030, there's a whole element in there around the economy. And that is about celebrating those businesses um, that we would work with as a council within our community. So there's a lot in that um, whole area around the economy, which is about the environment. I think probably the common theme, I would say, is around coming back to the local, you know, looking at local supply chains and that, that whole issue around globalization and you know, ever longer supply chains. It's also you see how lack of, lack of resilience we had when the pandemic hit. You know, we were talking about, did we have enough food within this country? We had to sort of rely on things coming from China, whether it was PPE or, or whatever it was. So I think there's a very big picture there. But I think when you look right down our local area, there's stuff that you can be doing as a council, which can be an influencer and an enabler and set an example. I'm, I believe quite strongly that as a council, you should be a role model and you should be setting example, the principles that you adhere to. Some of the ones I've ex- used as examples now around procurement, who do you work with? Um, and we've got a huge amount, for example, of criticism from the Conservatives when we wanted to adopt um, Unite the Union Construction Charter, which has been adopted by many councils around the country, um, some big ones like this, like Birmingham and others, um, to ensure that we work with Unite the Union in some construction sites and ensured that health and safety standards were good. And the Conservatives obviously got a different philosophy on that. So they don't think there should be that interference. And they, didn't, and they didn't want to support us on that at all. So we came into a lot of criticism. But I think there's an example of where a council can lead the way. And we're not just a passive part of our community. We're an active part of our community. We don't sit apart from our community. We're within it. And many of the council officers, as well as the councillors, are part of their community as well. You don't have council officers over here. They're all people who live and work and raise their families within the community as well. So I just think that's quite important. And I think what you've given as an example, that body of work and thinking um, which is is really powerful. And what I really like about it, it's all really practical. It's not sort of like out there ideological sort of idealistic things. It is powered by idealism, but it sits in the community and you can see practical examples every day if, if you really get that right. So you seem justifiably proud of the success Labour has had in being part of a cooperative alliance in the Stroud District Council. Do you think that there is the same level of effectiveness in Gloucestershire County Council? That's an interesting one because obviously Gloucestershire County Council is run by the Conservatives. Um, I don't think you have the same sort of inclusive politics there. I mean, I've even heard that from conservative um, backbenchers themselves who don't feel they're particularly included. They have a cabinet system, which I think tends to sort of create much more of a sort of responsibility and powers focused on a very few individuals. Um, I mean, we work very hard in our partnership working as a district council with the county council and some good examples of collaboration. But I mean, when I look at the way we run things, as a leader, I've worked really, really hard to include all parties within decisions. And over the last year through the pandemic, we've made a specific effort to do that. We've got our differences as political parties, but I think we need to lean into those differences when it's something that's important and really try to work across the board and build consensus. As a district council, we work very hard at that. Unfortunately, I don't see that same culture in operation at the county council, um, which is a shame. My personal feeling is, you know, it it can make a very good politics. It's hard work, but it's definitely good to be able to do that. So Stroud District Council works with like a cross-party committee system. Whereas the Gloucestershire County Council is a cabinet system, what, what's the key differences between those? So not long after the, the Cooperative Alliance, which is the Labour, Greens and Lib Dems took power, we had a choice and we decided to move to the committee system. So the committee system is a much more inclusive way of do, making decisions. So what you have then is you have a series of committees which cover the main areas, in our case, housing, environment, community services and licensing, and then also the strategy resources, which covers like the economies, generation uh, and things like that. And you have a chair of the, each chair of the committee. Now, the chair of a committee is a sort of leading councillor, but they should be working with all the committee members. The committee membership will be politically uh, proportional to the um, number of councillors you've got. So each party is represented within the proportions that you have on the council. So in effect, that means every single party is represented on that committee and has an opportunity to shape decisions when they go to committee meetings, they, they look at the papers. And obviously, the, the party which is in charge of the council sort of does lead that agenda and decides what the papers are and all the rest of it. 
But councillors can contribute through their debates, through their questioning to officers who are presenting the reports. They have an opportunity to sort of be part of that. So it requires quite a lot of work because you need to make sure you, you, you know, put time and effort into those committee meetings. And there'll be a lot of meetings outside and working groups that, you know, we, we have lots of working groups when we're working on particular projects or different things coming forward where all parties are represented again. And then that will eventually feed into the decision making process. And that's all done publicly. The cabinet system means you'll have a, a certain number of councillors who are the lead on that particular subject, that's housing or, or environment. And they're basically the decision makers and they'll come together in a cabinet meeting and they'll make the decisions. So if you're not in the cabinet, whether you're a part of the ruling party or not, you don't really have that same access to the decision-making process. I guess some things will come to a full council meeting and we'll have a discussion there and there will be some committees that do meet. I know the county has some meetings, but it's not the same. That's not where the decisions happen. I hope that sort of explains the sort of principal difference behind it. And I can see how the cabinet systems are very attractive because you just need to bring a few people with you and bam, if you want to make a decision, you can get it out. It's very effective decision-making wise. But when it comes to including all those councillors, and I think also we don't like to use the term backbench councillors at the district because no one really sits on the backbench. It's not like parliament. Everyone, every single councillor we've got, when we have a full complement, we have 51 councillors. They're all equal in many ways. They're all leaders within their community. Um, so it's not like backbenchers. Obviously, if a chair of committee has a little bit more responsibility as leader, you have more responsibility. But I think it, it makes a much more inclusive system. And the other important thing is Stroud District is very politically diverse. We're a marginal parliamentary constituency. Throughout its entire history, it has returned a very wide range of different political parties. The Greens, the Lib Dems, Labour, Conservatives are all well represented. We always have a, a few independents. So I think we need a system that reflects our political makeup. We're not a council which has like 99% one party or another. So I think it's it's right for us. Um, and it's the sort of politics that we need at this particular district. We're much more diverse than the other districts in Gloucestershire, who are similarly diverse, but we're certainly the most so. Following on from our previous chat about post-COVID recovery, what steps are Labour taking to ensure a green recovery? What do you see as the key policy areas for making sure that Stroud has a sustainable transition? So, as I mentioned before, we've adopted a very ambitious strategy and a master plan to get ourselves to become a carbon neutral district by 2030, which is actually a, a major ambition and a major task and has been said on repeated occasions, not something a council can do on its own. The difficulty we've got is we're constantly fighting against the headwinds of national government, even more so in the last 10 years under the Conservatives, who always say the right things. And honestly, I'm losing track of how many times they've made a new announcement. We had Boris's 10-point plan for the environment. Now they've announced another thing this week about how we increase it or bring the timeline forward to targets. But it's a lot of words. There isn't practical support. So we're one of many councils and councillors feeling absolutely passionate that we have to get on and do something. It is a genuine emergency. We need to do something. And government is not giving us the tools or the power or the money to get on and achieve it because we could deliver a lot of that, that carbon reduction targets that they need to do nationally. We could deliver it locally ourselves. I think specifically, there are some really significant strands as a district council, bearing in mind we're not the county council. We're not responsible, for example, for transport. Transport obviously is a major cause of carbon emissions. A couple of things I'd mention. One is the built environment. Buildings are a major um, source of emissions, um, both private and public. And through our council house building and our renovation of our existing council homes, we've been doing stuff over the last years, either through uh, energy efficiency measures, installing renewables and increasing insulation. That work's ongoing and it's been going on since um, I've been involved as a councillor. And also on our building um, high standards of, of new council homes. So we're doing that within our own stock, but that's only a, a small uh, fraction of, of what we have within the whole district. So what we have been doing is trying to encourage that amongst private homeowners. But what I would like to see is that we really ratchet that up. And if, you know, if we're running the council post May the 6th, we need to really, really build a proper, I use the word ecosystem. We need an ecosystem across the entire district of being able to enable retrofit to happen across all the housing stock, whatever age it is and, and whatever its needs are. And it's not, it is quite a challenge because we just don't have the capacity in the local economy. We need, we need the people with the skills to be able to do that. But it is absolutely essential. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere near 
doing it. And if you look at the master plan that we adopted back in March, we laid out some more detailed steps about how that can happen. But we absolutely need government to get its act together and step up. I mean, I, I was so bitterly disappointed by the fact that they launched this Green Homes Grant scheme, which looked absolutely great and everyone was going to get all these grants. Then I, I, for some crazy reason, which I guess is just their typical thing, let's farm it off to a private contractor where they set, gave it to this US company to run, which is a complete disaster. The people trying to do the work couldn't get through and couldn't get the support they needed. The people who wanted to access the grants couldn't get the grants. And then now, a few months later, they've just said, well, we've just given up. So what are we supposed to do now? There was an element that where councils could have uh, could bid for funds to do some work with particular with poorer households, people really at risk of health inequality because they they had cold homes. We applied, I think, twice now for that and been successful both times. So we've got on with our bit of it. Just another example where local council gets on and does it. You give it to a private contractor, you just end up with failure. So I'm just asking myself, what is government expecting to happen and how on earth are they going to sort of make this work? So I think locally, we will do what we can with what limited resources that we have. Um, the other element to it that is absolutely crucial and mustn't be forgotten is around the natural environment and um, and looking at how we not only protect what we currently have, and we do live in a beautiful part of the world with a lot of green space, but it's enhancing that as well and, and looking at biodiversity because we have to remember it's not just a climate emergency, it's also an ecological emergency. And we have got aspirations to how we could increase biodiversity. Now that I think is quite challenging. So I think there's also about care for our environment and how do we protect what we've got and how do we enhance just literally Yesterday, we've agreed as a council to endorse the Gloucestershire tree strategy. So really interesting debate yesterday about the significance of trees and how they can play their part. I think it's bigger than trees though, isn't it? It's just looking at the whole natural world and within our district and how that can also be part of that aspiration to be carbon neutral. So I think those are two quite important aspects where as a council, we can have a significant role to play. And the third one, which I think um, we also need to consider is around renewable energy and how we increase the generation we've got. And again, that's another example where government has let us down repeatedly, sort of, for example, just making it harder and harder for anyone to um, put up a wind turbine anywhere. You go to other parts of the world and you can see there are just all sorts of examples of renewable energy which has been encouraged by the state. And unfortunately here we just have barriers put in the way, you know, the decline of the subsidies for people who want to install their own renewable energy. So I suppose my, my overall thought is the ambition we have locally and the expertise and the passion we have to do something about it and we are running out of time. You know, every day we get closer to it being too late to do something. We just absolutely need to get on with it. And we just keep doing it despite the headwinds of this government who just really doesn't seem to have the political will. Again, it might be just because they're lobbied by sort of fossil fuel industries who just, you know, push them in the wrong direction. But I certainly think we have the potential to do it. And it is something that pretty much you could go to any part of this district, not just the areas that are obviously perhaps more environmentally aware anywhere and you talk to people about it and it's something people really do care about um, and I think that's that's remained even through the pandemic so ironically what's been on our mind for the last year has been the pandemic but of course the climate and ecological emergency is obviously a far greater threat to all of us and um, so we've done a lot and I think we've put some really good um, sort of the groundwork in the foundations as a district council and if we are running the council as Labour or in, in alliance with the other parties post-May, we have got a really good plan in place that's just been adopted and we just need to crack on and put all our energies into doing it because we haven't got much time left. Fantastic. We've got some questions which were prompted by responses to our survey from Stroud District residents. One of the first I'd like to start with is how autonomous are Stroud Labour councillors from national policy? That's a really interesting question. Stroud, the Stroud Labour Party, when I say Stroud, I mean Stroud District or Stroud Constituency Labour Party, has always been extremely independent. And my politics have been very much shaped by that. And, you know, of course, we sort of see what's going on nationally. There's a lot of stuff, isn't there, constantly happening in the National Party. But we've always prided ourselves on our independence. And I think that's very much part of local politics and local culture. So I think you know, we've been through quite a lot of ups and downs as a Labour Party in recent years. And obviously, we represent as a party the whole spectrum of people who are absolutely passionate about the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn and other people who didn't like him as a leader. And then obviously, now we've got people who think Keir Starmer is the solution, other people who have concerns about his leadership. But I think what really, what really unites us all is the care for where we live and seeing that the sort of continuity of Labour as a movement, and I say Labour and the trade union movement as well, which is very much our heart as well, 
also many of us are members of the cooperative party. So I think that whole thing together for us, it's fine. We've got our views on what's happening nationally. You know, if the party nationally is doing something which we think is good, obviously we'll be really behind it. And at the end of the day, the only alternative government we've got to the Conservatives is a Labour government. That's the only chance we've got of seeing a change in political leadership in this country, which to be frank, we absolutely desperately need. So of course, we're part of that that Labour Party broad church. But I think particularly now during the local elections, what really counts for us right now is what we've done locally on the ground at the smallest possible scale. Sometimes, as I said, some of our councillors or candidates who've been part of their communities doing stuff like, for example, just over the pandemic, even things like making PPE or you know, helping out with the vaccination program as volunteers, all this stuff. That's what really counts for us right now. The National Party, of course, is important. But I think going back to your question, which was how autonomous we are, we have been, and and ever since I've been involved in this party for the last 10 years or so, what we always want to do the right thing, even if that doesn't always get on very well with the national leadership. You know, David Drew is a good example of an MP who would follow his conscience and vote according to what he felt was right even if it went against the, what the party whips were saying. Unfortunately, we don't have an MP at the moment who ever seems to do that. So a kind of follow-up question to that previous one is, can you give an example of times where you have represented views that you do not personally hold, but you know it is the will of the people you're representing? Oh my gosh, what an interesting question. Yeah, I, I actually feel quite strongly, even though I might have different views, that if local residents come to me with something, then I really need to take it seriously because I might not feel so passionately about it. Perhaps an example would be we had the Littlecombe development, which is like a really you know major regeneration site. And at one end of it, we had a local group of residents who, who felt that one end should be preserved as a village green. It wasn't registered as a village green. And that they wanted to have it registered. And there was a real block. And I don't know, the town and the county councils weren't talking to each other. And these residents came to me saying, what can we do? So I sort of, you know, helped bring people together so we could actually have a proper conversation. And through a very long process, it got to a point where it was registered as a green. And I suppose my initial thoughts were, my concern was houses were supposed to go on that site. If those of you familiar with Dursley, it's that big green area, which is at the at the, the Dursley end um, near the very nice old building, the Priory. And obviously, because less houses could be built there, and some of those would have been affordable houses, it did have an impact on the whole site, which meant less money could come through. And obviously, we were very keen as a council, very involved with that Littlecombe site. You know, we'd help to get it going again after the Southwest Regional Agency folded one of the things that the government did when they cut that back when they came into power in 2010 or whenever it was. And it looked like the whole regeneration of that site was going to fall over. And the district council came in and worked with David Drew to save it. And now we've got a fantastic growing community there with all the new houses. So I suppose my concern there was when I was first approached, I thought, well, it would be a shame if it, it impacts the viability and we get this housing. But then I suppose now it's there and I've helped to sort of, so I felt it was my duty to represent them. I have to say now it's a rather beautiful green space. And it's quite a lot of grass. I'm quite keen to see, bearing in mind what we were saying earlier about the natural environment, whether we could perhaps rewild a bit of it and get some wildflowers or something going there. So that would be one example, I guess. Um, and I probably could find similar practical examples. Um, I, I think it is your duty. But it goes the other way as well. I think if someone comes to you and you feel you don't quite agree with them, you should. You need to be honest with people. You know, if people come to you and say, well, I want this and this to happen. And you think, I think that's probably not realistic. Even though I can see, I would love you to be able to get what you want or the thing that you're lobbying for. It might not be practical for whatever reason. I would also always try to be honest and go back to people and say, well, honestly, I'll do my best, but I can't guarantee. I'm not going to make over promise. And I think people definitely appreciate honesty. I've had people say, well, thank you for trying to help. I realized that you couldn't get what it was we wanted, but at least you were honest with me. We all saw the recent piece in the Times saying Stroud is the best place to live in the UK, but we were wondering, do you think that is true for all of the residents of Stroud District? Does the same apply to people living in other villages and towns, Cam, Dursley, Hardwick? Do those people feel like they are living in the best part of the country? It's interesting because Stroud District has got quite a particular geography and obviously Stroud is the main town and Stroud has got a fantastic character and you can see why that article happened because it is, it's a unique town in the country, isn't it? It's really great combination of this fantastic countryside that we, we have around us. Um, and in fact, all of our towns share that. But Stroud has this particular amazing mix of political liveliness and culture and it, it's quite unique. And I think that's what, what was very much came out of that article. 
But what I really love, and sometimes it's infuriating because you're trying to balance all the different towns. We've got quite a few towns, haven't we, in the district? And they're all very different in character and all very fiercely independent. And sometimes you feel when, as when I'm speaking as council leader and you're trying to work out that fairness to make sure everyone gets what's needed. And, you know, you feel like sometimes everyone's sort of competing against each other because everyone wants to be getting this, that and the other. So I think trying to work really hard with all the towns is important. And I think probably if you went to any part of the district, you'd find people would say that where they live was the best. Um, we, we ourselves as a council do a, a regular residence and business survey. And interestingly enough, the pride in, and, and the affection for where people live always comes very, very high. It's something that's quite particular to this part of the world. So it is about the town of Stroud, but I think it does go out into to the other areas as well. But I think something, some interesting comments that I saw from people, I think the difficulty with something like that is in the Times and everything, so it's wonderful. As like with any rural area, there is, and I think you touched on inequality right at the beginning of this interview, it can sometimes mask some real problems and challenges. And we do live in, in an area where there are haves and haves nots. So for there are many people, it's wonderful. They live in a fantastic town like Stroud or Dursley. They've got everything they need. I mean, it's not a pandemic. They can work from home. They're at home. It's all fine. But there are other people who aren't, who don't have those opportunities. I mean, we've talked just a bit about housing. One of the concerns about saying that Stroud's the best place to live, will that make the house prices go up, making it even more difficult for young people to find somewhere to live? And, and we also don't have enough places for people to rent either in the private rental sector. So my real worry is we've got those two levels going on at the same time. The town of Stroud, as much as anywhere else, where we have people who don't have those opportunities. And as we've talked a little bit about the hollowing out of public services, the lack of decent transport, Stroud is probably better served. You come down to this part of the world, Cam and Dursley, we've seen cuts to buses. It's increasingly difficult if you don't own a car to be able to access things. So I think as a Labour councillor, as a candidate, I'm going to be saying that to you because that is our concern. And that's our job as councillors is to identify where that need is and really try to address it. But it remains a concern. And as I said before, during the pandemic, we really saw that highlighted. I talked about the GL11 Community Hub, which works with the food bank to make sure people get food. I mean, it's really heartbreaking how many families are relying on them for food and have done for the last year. I think at some point they were feeding about 5% of the population. And that that really tells you something. That is shocking. And that shouldn't really be happening. So we're extremely fortunate where we live. And I do say that on a regular basis. And we have fantastic communities, but must also be really mindful that there are people out there who really need extra support. And the pandemic's really highlighted that, hasn't it? Well, that leads me very nicely onto my next question, which is about house prices and social housing. When we spoke to Stephen Davies, he had some criticisms of the Labour-led council, and he liked to point out that there were apparently a total of five new homes built in 2020 into 2021. I suppose the question is, does Labour have a plan to help make sure that long-term residents of the Stroud district aren't priced out of their homes? And is there a plan, is there a commitment to building more social housing in general? This seems to be one of the main attack lines of the Conservatives against us that we haven't built enough housing, which I think is quite rich because one of the reasons why we haven't built as much housing as we'd like is because the government doesn't give us the powers to do it. Let me give you one practical example. We've got the right to buy, which obviously Margaret Thatcher brought in. Now, if you go back and look at the figures around the time I became councillor, probably about 10 years or so ago, people buying council homes was probably around well, less than five. I mean, it was around four-ish a year. And then when we took power in 2012, government changed the rules so we were unable to start building council homes again. So there'd been the rules in place for some time, which didn't allow us to do it. So we, we took on this huge debt. We took on our council housing stock so we could start building. And not long after, the government decided to increase the discounts on council homes. So I think it's up to about 50% of the price if you want to buy a flat, £80,000 if you wanted to buy your own home. And we suddenly saw a rocketing up of right to buy. So we're averaging around 25 homes sold every year. So um, that's just one practical example where the government made a policy decision. You know, you could argue if you live in your own home, you want to buy your own council house. I can understand that. But it means from the point of view of a council, which is trying to build extra homes, and Stephen Davis was saying about building net, he didn't say how many we've built because the Conservatives, going back to my thing about the committee system, have been involved in the housing committee themselves and have supported the house building program all through these last years and have voted with us to um, bring in our, our last lot of pro, uh, program, which I think was 22 million to build, I think, 239 homes, all of which have been delivered over the last five years. So we delivered what we said we were going to do. And we have plans for about 100 odd more. And in our manifesto, we are committing to deliver more than that. 
so that's one example. And, and I should also say that in Wales and Scotland, they've got rid of the right to buy. And I think one of the reasons is it just uh, means you cannot, if you increase the discount like that, you just keep selling homes and you can't build up enough. And the other worry is that it's not that they get sold to families and then families live in them to their end of the days. Many of them get sold on. And I can show you in this district where a lot of them have just ended up in the private rented sector. So all you've got then is that an asset which has been paid for by taxpayers and by the council tenants is now just fueling private income, which I think is just a real shame. And then we've got thousands of people on the waiting list, so we can't build enough of them. Government also, for a long time in the last few years, capped our borrowing. We basically had to hit pause on our council house building program until finally they they released the borrowing cap again and we could start building again. So I've made the point before about headwinds. They just do not give us the powers that we need to build as many houses as we would build if we could. We've got the capacity, we've got the knowledge in the council. I've said before, this is an over-centralising government which doesn't trust local government, won't give us the power. So they talk the talk about let's have more housing but they don't give us the power to build. They don't give us the power to force developers to put more affordable homes on their developments. We negotiate our socks off to make sure we get at least a percentage on those private developments. We can deliver social housing ourselves, we can build, but we can also make sure that we get a certain percentage of affordable homes on, on any private development. And there's a lot going on in the district because, again, government is saying you need to build a certain amount of houses. So every, every way we turn, we get pushed back on what we'd like to do. So I do find it quite rich that the Conservative councillor is saying we haven't built enough. If he's really serious about that and he really does care, he should go and lobby very hard central government, for example, to get rid of the right to buy and just give us more powers to do things. Another good example would be developers get planning permission. I think there's um, outstanding planning permission for about 4,000 homes currently in the district and they just sit on them because they wait for the land values to rise. They're not interested in building. Well, if we had the powers, and I'm not the only one who said this, many councils have said, Give us the powers to take it back or just the or planning permission expires. If you've sat on it for five years and you haven't put any homes in, well, give us, we'll take it back. We'll make sure it gets built or you won't have your planning permission anymore. Um, so that's another thing because it's extremely frustrating. Another example where we aren't given the power to do what we could do locally. So, so that's the problem with housing is that it's complicated. But at the end of the day, as I said, we've got thousands of people on our waiting list who need somewhere to live. And people who don't necessarily need a council house, who aren't eligible for council house, who want to buy or went to rent, aren't given the affordable homes that they need. And at the same time, developers are given all the powers they need to keep building executive homes, which seem to get bought. But really, is that going to keep our local communities resilient and keep our young people here or keep our our working families here? I don't think so. Unfortunately, we live in a country where too much power goes to the landlords and too much power goes to private developers and not enough comes back to local communities. And one final thing I'll say about that is around the value of the land. So there's been a campaign for some time around, you know, if you you have a piece of land, you buy it, then you get planning permission on it. Just by dint of planning permission, the value goes right up. Now, who does that value actually belong to? Shouldn't some of that value come back to the local community? You know, it shouldn't necessarily just go to the developer or whoever the landowner is. There's quite an interesting debate around that. And so there's some really practical stuff that could be done. From our point of view as a council, as I said, we've built homes. We've built homes to extremely good standards. We've got in the pipeline, we've got across the district, we've got projects going on right now in all different parts of the district to build more. We've got potential to, to increase that. And so, as I said, if we're running the council post May, we shall keep on and we shall work with whoever happens to be elected, whether they're conservatives or not to ensure we get more homes in the district. So we won't we won't personally worry too much about party politics. We'll just crack on and do our best. And hopefully um, everyone will come with us and support us doing that. And any opportunity we can have to increase the house building, we definitely will. Next, I'd like to ask you about the Five Valleys Shopping Centre. Over the past nine months, we've seen the last of the commercial units filled out and the final shape of this borough market for Stroud emerge. This is a flagship development for the town centre, but with a reported £3 million of public money having been invested, we think it's worth asking whether Stroud and its residents will actually see any long-term benefits. These sorts of developments tend to generate large incomes for the private owners of the asset itself through rent payments from local businesses setting up shop. And with many of the jobs created being typical low-wage or insecure retail and hospitality positions, there is a certain concern that the Five Valley Centre will line the pockets of a landlord who doesn't live in the district rather than providing the revitalised town centre it's been sold as. Our concerns are a result of hearing about, in brief, high employee turnover during development, extractively high rents, and we've also heard about a former tenant essentially being strong-armed out by the shopping centre's directors. 
so what is your assessment of how our district stands in terms of these kinds of disparities? How do you see these trends evolving and what's your plan to make sure that all the members of our community are able to continue living and thriving here? Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, the funding, the loan came from, or the grant rather, was from the LET, the Local Enterprise Partnership, which is, well, every part of the country has such an entity and it's very much the, well, there's a combination of local authorities, but principally it's businesses. And that's something that the government set up. It felt that businesses should have a say in where funding goes. And yes, Merry Walks was one area that was identified now called Five Valleys in order to invest in the town centre. I think it's it's extremely concerning when you say that you're saying about people's working conditions and something I'd definitely like to explore further and, and talk to, for example, you know, someone like Elstor, a union within the work retail sector to see what is going on there um, and, and actually to ensure that that isn't the case because that's very worrying to me. It's difficult, isn't it? Because we know a high streets have, have a real problem. And before the pandemic started, there was a real sort of crisis hanging over them. And we had this shopping centre in Stroud, which is sort of doing quite well, but probably was likely to go the way of many other parts, other town centres without any significant investment could possibly have just ended up getting itself into real, a real difficulty and a decline. So, you know, we've had this investment come in and trying to transform something and to bring and attract people to the town and create something more vibrant. So in, in some ways, I think that is a positive. But as you said, it has to be done in the right sort of way. Now, some of the instances you've told me about something that I'm not familiar with. So I certainly like to see what is going on and how we as a council could try to ensure that we have, um, that it gets better. That's definitely the case. And as I've understood it as well, they've really tried to make an effort to sort of work with local businesses and encourage that as well. So it's not simply those big brands coming in. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I want the local economies to succeed. And that does mean getting people into the high streets, but it does mean bringing in people who have actually got higher disposable income to spend. So how do you sort of match that with, you know, the, the other things that we, we've been we talking about previously? So I'm not necessarily saying that we shouldn't have those sorts of shops and things in the town, but it obviously has to be well balanced. What we wouldn't want to see is that it's sort of something that comes in that doesn't feel like it fits very well with Stroud as a town. But yes, so funnily enough, I don't know when this interview is going out, but I'm actually due to go and see the new sort of what's happening at Five Valleys. So this is a good opportunity for me to raise some of these concerns directly um, because we're going to have a bit of a look round, and obviously with lockdown, I haven't been able to go anywhere very much or see anywhere. So I haven't been up there for, for months and months. So it's probably looking quite different when I was there probably well over a year ago. But I, I'll definitely take those concerns away and really sort of look at what we can do to ensure and raise awareness of that because that really wouldn't be right. And obviously with things opening up now, people will be starting to go into the shopping centre more. So it's important that how it goes forwards as it sort of starts to get to the point of really being fully open that we ensure it is an asset for the town and as you say doesn't end up being bedeviled by all sorts of problems and concerns which is not the sort of thing we want to be seeing in Stroud. I think the concern that we've had is simply about developments like the Five Valley Shopping Centre or the Canal Restoration or even Brimston Port being a way for someone to make money but not someone who has lived and grown up in Stroud. I mean how much of Stroud's high street do Stroudies actually own? And the same applies to other places in the district. It's not something that's unique to us. I think there's a real issue around ownership of the high street and people see the high street wherever it happens to be, whichever town you're in. And you sort of see the challenges the high street has and you think that's because people are using online retail and the rest of it. But there's another issue which isn't terribly talked about as much as it should be, which is, as you said, who owns the high street? And unfortunately, in many places, and Stroud probably is not unusual in that, you do have sort of entities or businesses, or sometimes they may even be based overseas, who just own swathes of the high street as an asset. And so when you talk about local councils or local authorities trying to have an active part in ensuring that, you know, like you said, that rents don't go out or that local shops are supported, you suddenly realize that you have less power than you think because actually where are those owners so what would be great to see would be more local ownership of the high street not just the people who rent those units tricorn house is an example where the owner isn't local the council the district council and various other people for many years have been trying to make something happen there and trying to engage positively with the owner well it's really up to the owner really to engage positively with us to see, have you actually got the will to do something and with it? So I think those concerns are absolutely legitimate. They're not particularly unique to where we are, but I think it's a hidden problem for the high street around rents. So people talk a lot about businesses and business rates, 
But I think often the rent can be the issue. I can give you a practical example. I know of a business, a retail business, which had one, two different renting in two different parts, one in our district, one in a, in Gloucestershire, but not in our district. And in the place in the district where they took to the landlord said, I'm, I can't open, I'm really in difficulties, could we come to arrangement? The landlord said yes and, and did something. In the other place, they absolutely refused to give them any sort of discount. It was just really so unfair and horrendous on, on this particular business. So landlords have got a really important part to play, um, definitely. And I think sometimes that's quite hidden and we don't think about it too much. Essentially, mentioned Brimscombe Port is owned by the district council and the intention is to transfer it over. The ownership will be the Stroud Valley's canal company. So it will be a local entity. And obviously, the canal regeneration as well has many different aspects to it. It's, it is the enhancement of the natural environment. It will also bring visitors into the district, which is something we do need to see, because obviously that does support the local economy. And hopefully, the sorts of visitors who come to the canal, ideally when the whole thing is open, would be the sort of visitors we'd like to see who will really appreciate what our district represents and, and who we are. You have also the actual regeneration and the incredible engineering work and the skills that have been involved is very important for many people who are passionate about canals, about the heritage. You know, at the end of the day, our district is marked by that sort of heritage, by the mills along the valleys, by the canal. And it's great that we're seeing that that heritage come back and not be lost in many cases like Brimscombe Port. And it was outside Ebley Mill as well. It was just lost under a concrete car park. And it's now created a really lovely green space. Many people commute or go into the Stroud along there. And another thing is it does make it more of an attractive place to we do need to attract businesses and to stay here and to grow here. Um, not only ones to come from outside, but also ones growing within our district to, to enable them to expand and remain here. So the canal, again, can play an important part in that. And the other thing about the canal is it's thousands of hours of volunteer work. Many people I know who've been absolutely, it's been a lifeline for them to be able to work on the canal and, and, and people have been able to access. So I think maybe people look at the canal and just see one aspect of it, but it has many other aspects. And I think that's why, as a council, we've, we've continued to support it because we see it has a lot of other aspects um, as well as just the obviously one of digging out a canal. And, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, but I hope it will be seen as a local asset for everyone. You know, that's really important. We're kind of following a, a thread here about who Stroud or who the Stroud district is for. Last year, we had the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. There were protests in Stroud itself, sparking conversations about race and racism in the area. And to start with, do you think that racism is an issue in the district? And if so, how do you hope to address its impact on Black, Asian and minority ethnic residents in Stroud? Well, I think it's not for me to say whether racism exists in the district. I mean, last year when we had the Black Lives Matter um, protests, we heard some really powerful testimonies from local residents who were themselves black or from other minority ethnic backgrounds. And they said yes. So I think the whole point about Black Lives Matter is, is to listen very much and learn. And I think I've learned a huge amount over the last year. And, um, there's some, you know, for example, Stroud Against Racism, quite an active group. And, you know, through that and other things we've heard. So yes, it does exist. I mean, it's sad, isn't it? But I think the first thing we have to do is say, accept that is that is the case and that is the lived experience for people. I mean, I've had a taste of it myself. I mean, I, my father's from Romania originally. And when I was a, a teenager, I was living in Cornwall for a little while. Racism is very much often is about ignorance, isn't it? And just you see someone who's a bit foreign, you don't really know who they are, where they're coming from. Um, but, you know, people called me all sorts of racist names when I was at school. And so I had a tiny taste. And that was, in a, again, a small rural community of prejudice. So I do understand, I can relate to it. Um, so, so absolutely, yes, it does exist, sadly. And, and but and it's, it's unfortunately, what we also saw during that time was people who should have known better, you know, unfortunately, people from a white background saying not listening, and not accepting that, that actually what people were saying was so I mean, that whole thing about all lives matter as well, that sort of started, which I just thought, you know, that was just awful. So, so absolutely, it is it is concern. And it's not simply about what people tend to think of racism. Is it about overt racism? It's that sort of bigger picture. And interesting, we've had that controversy, haven't we, about the government's report coming out saying there's no institutional racism. But many, many experts and leading figures, particularly in the black community, have come out and said, well, it's just not so. So obviously, that will be the case in our community as well. We're not, we're not immune from that. But, you know, if we, we are ourselves white, understanding what that means and what we do about it is extremely challenging. 
And it caused us as a, as a district council to reflect on, well, are we in the right place? Is what we're doing good enough? Are we challenging ourselves enough? So it was interesting last year, wasn't it? Because it really forced us to think and maybe realise that we're all quite complacent in many ways. That we all would say to ourselves, yes, I'm anti-racist. But actually, were we doing enough? Were we aware of all that insidious stuff that was going on, which we probably ourselves hadn't even challenged? And it did cause changes. So, for example, amongst within the council, we've got council officers who are black, and you know they would get had discussions amongst themselves and discuss what their what their view of the council was. That helped to inform a group that we set up um, to look at our equalities policy, and we just recently adopted a plan around action, you know, around diversity, around inclusion. And we're looking to appoint some community representatives to work with us on that. So I think it's given us a bit of a kick up the backside as well to say, well, it's not good enough what we're doing. So I think um, it was a really important moment. And and it's incredible how that just spun around the world and really sparked something in everyone. And it marked our, our community as much as anywhere else. And I really hope it doesn't just die away again. I hope we keep this on the front burner and we just continue to challenge ourselves and strategy against racism as our candidates and I've signed up to it as well to sort of sign quite some challenging pledges around that so the councillors who are elected now will be councillors until 2024 so whether we're in the political administration or not you know we need to take those pledges seriously and not just say it's a pledge we're signing for an election but actually make it happen so there's still work to be done on that. Do you think the Gloucestershire County Council is making the right kind of movements as well? Are they, are they doing as much to kind of increase representation, diversity and inclusion in that institution? I don't know. I mean, when it, you look at the makeup of the councillors, the candidates, it's pretty woeful, really. And, and our district is sort of moving in the right direction. But still, we don't, we just still, local government is awful when it comes to diversity, not only for people's ethnic background, but also for having a balance of, of women as well. So the county council isn't particularly good in that. It'd be interesting to see post-May the 6th, if we have a better representation. I mean, they did do a very good piece of work. The director of public health, I have to say, um, her annual report, um, she worked with, I think it was the head of the Black Officer Network at the county, and they produced a report specifically looking at the impact on the Black and ethnic minority community. So they are, there are some pieces of work going on which are good. But of course, you can always do more. The report that was done on the health was good and we had a presentation on that at the district council. But again, a report is a report, isn't it? If it's not actually put into practical action, then it's not it's not much use. And although we don't have such a, we have a smaller percentage of uh, people in the district, in some parts of the county, particularly Gloucester, you've got communities, strong communities who have been very um, negatively impacted, for example, by COVID. Mm. So if you take Gloucestershire as a whole, there are certain areas of our, of our county where we need to ensure that good action is taking place and really working with community leaders to make sure that, again, as we're saying with the inequalities, that they aren't negatively, more negatively impacted than elsewhere. So on a similar thread, the Kill the Bill protests have sparked a lot of discussion about specifically anti-traveller or gypsy Roman traveller racism. And something that we've had put to us is that SDC has failed to act responsibly with these communities in the past. And it was only in the last couple of weeks that a Stroud District Council spokesperson referred to travellers arriving in Stratford Park as an issue that needed solving as quickly as possible. So I suppose the question is, what is the council currently doing to provide access to safe and dignified spaces and services for GRT communities? And do you think that could be improved? This is before I became leader, but this isn't something that the council's just picked up in the last few weeks. There's been work being done previously in working with the traveller community to, um, I think we had a site over at Morton Balance that was allocated as well. And, and so, so there has been stuff that has been done. As I understand it, you know, we do have traveller communities that go through and, um, officers will generally talk to them and work with them and they'll stay for a while and then they move on. So, that, that is a sort of ongoing process, uh, sort of experience. And I'm not aware that there's been any issues um, with that. Um, they'll always find somewhere that they can stay before they need to move on in the district. And as I said, there has also been work to create sort of um, sites for them in the district. So so that's, that's all that I'm aware of. As with anything, if anyone um, gives you an example of a, a particular concern, I would certainly want to hear about it. And, and then we can act on it because that wouldn't, be anything that we'd be tolerating. I mean, we know over the years that we've seen increasing barriers being put in the way of the traveling community who have this long time standing cultural inheritance, which they should be allowed to continue as far as I can see. And as you gave the example of the latest legislation from the government, yet again, just picking on one part of our country, with, which doesn't have much power to fight back and just 
have you got nothing better to do at the moment than to pick on them? I said earlier on, didn't I, about the over-centralisation and we've got a pandemic on our hands, we've got the climate emergency on our hands. I do really wish that the government would focus its efforts on those sorts of things. I find all this, this stuff extremely provocative and I think it's deliberately provocative. It's just trying to divide us and sort of set people against each other and it's just completely unnecessary and really irresponsible. But I certainly think, you know, we can always do more as a council and I would I would be I hope that we are and as I know under the I think certainly and previously to Steve Lydon that work was done and we could probably go back and find what things we've done in the past. Um but it's always important that we, we do support those communities as well as everyone else. So now we have a question from Stephen Davies from the Conservative Party in Stroud. And he asks, if I lived in Minchinhampton and wanted to vote Labour or Nailsworth and wanted to vote Green in the county council elections, I wouldn't be able to as there are no candidates. In the case of Labour, is this because you couldn't find anyone to stand or is it the result of a deal? And if it is a deal, what are the details and shouldn't the public be made aware of this? That's an interesting question. Um, so... The Labour Party isn't allowed to make deals with other parties. It's something we can't do. I have to say that it's extremely hard to find candidates. In some parts of, of the district, we've got some fantastic candidates. As I said, we've been really trying to encourage an extra diversity to get younger candidates, to get women candidates. But it's so hard to get people who are working age to put themselves forward. You spot people who are just fantastic. And they, they haven't been able to do it. So it's been extremely challenging to do that. So I suppose that's a, a, a part of it, um, why we haven't got that. I know the Conservatives have made a big play on the fact they're standing people everywhere. As far as I'm aware, um, and I'd have to try and think about the county and, and the district sort of elements, we've pretty much got, you could be voting Labour in, in all aspects, well, in, in all parts and, uh, of the district, whether it's county or district. Um, so that's all I can really say on that one. We'll have to wait and see what happens post-May, what, what the council looks like when we come back. And so a question from Molly Scott-Cater from the Green Party, and I think we kind of touched on this. She asks, are you concerned about the threats to democracy in the UK and what would you change to make sure that we restore and enhance our democracy? So I am concerned about democracy. I've been a supporter of, a personal supporter of electoral form, well, for as long as I can remember, really. And I am part of a group of Labour members who will be campaigning to make sure Labour gets it in their next manifesto because I absolutely think um, that it is essential for this country to get some form of electoral reform. So if you vote, you have a representative. I think the first past the post, unfortunately, means many people are disenfranchised. And I'd like to see the same for um, local elections as well. So in that sense, I think I agree with the Green Party's position that we need some form of electoral reform. So I think it's partly about the voting system. I've mentioned before as well about I'm really concerned about the centralisation of power. There feels like there's a lack of trust of local government, not just local government, local communities, local people, and government seems to want to um, decide everything for itself. And using the pandemic as an example, where we've seen things work extremely effectively, I'll give you one practical example, vaccination programme, um, in our district has been one of the most successful in the country, has been run by local GP surgeries, the local NHS teams and a team of vaccine vol vaccination volunteers. And it's been extremely successful. Um, other things like the centralised track and trace system, which has been overly centralised and hasn't used the expertise of public health sector, hasn't been successful. So there's a deeper strand that, that really concerns me. And I feel like we've seen an acceleration of centralisation of power in the last uh, year or so. And I'm really worried the government's using that as an excuse um, with the pandemic to take power back to itself. So ironically, Brexit was about take back control, but it seems to be take back control for the government and not for people, which is possibly not what people voted for. But yeah, so in that sense, it is concerning. Um, hopefully that gives you a, few, a couple of ideas of what, how I would think democracy is, is, a, is a worry. And of course, if people don't feel agents of their change if they think their vote isn't worth anything then then that's a real shame having said which i would encourage people please vote um in this local election it's extremely important you know you get to decide now who's going to be running your local council um for the next few years and we've got important decisions to make so hopefully people will get out and vote because at the end of the day we fought for those rights and it's important that people don't waste it The final question I want to put to you, because restrictions are loosening and people are able to go out again, 
what is your favourite pub and favourite drink of choice, alcoholic or not? Oh, blimey. Well, I have got, I cannot answer that one without saying it's the old spot in Dursley, not very far away from where I live. Just a lovely community pub. And my favourite drink, that's a tricky one, I have to say that probably um, a good beer. But during lockdown, I found um, Woodchester Valley Vineyard. They do some lovely local wines. It's incredible that we're growing wine in, in this in this part of the world. So if I was going to have some wine, it might be from them. Amazing. Well, thank you very much. And uh, good luck when the results come out. Thanks, George. Thank you for listening to this episode of Amplify FM. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can subscribe to the podcast and find our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Also, feel free to check out our content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, at AmplifyStroud.com. 